Hello, this is Adam Ray Atkins, and I am speaking today with Admin One about the situation in Colombia. I was going to start this off by just asking you to introduce yourself and kind of telling us who you are, what your work is, and um, then we can get into the details about Colombia from there. So I'm the original admin of a meme page called at cu underscore media underscore funhouse.exe. Uh, I started it uh, in college and it was originally a Cooper Union specific meme page, I guess. And then, it, you know, once I graduated, it kind of turned into something else. Coincidentally, I started writing theory under the name Clandestine Unit for Imaginary Research. And it, it was just out of coincidence that uh, CU and CU uh, just worked out, so I didn't change the name. I think the name Clandestine Unit for Imaginary Research is really intriguing. It really kind of draws you in, and it works for the meme page because you post tons and tons of memes. Uh, <laughs> and, and so it's, it's great because, you know, my co-host Mike has talked about how uh, the abstraction of constant meme flow is, you know, something that's actually kind of powerful, maybe even akin to this Adornian shutter or the way that Walter Benjamin experienced the arcades while walking through Paris. But it's not the individual meme. It's uh, the collective memes, but your page alone kind of operates in that way because it is so much and they kind of throw you from more serious to more shit posty uh, and all over the place. So yeah. do, you, do you find your theory writing directly influencing the memes or the memes influencing the theory or do you kind of view them as separate? I, I, I well, so no, I think, I think the theory influences my the curation of the memes in general but they're not they're not super connected i would say um uh i i kind of feel like a because you brought up the arcades i feel like um like a bit of a flander you know just like i'm i myself am constantly bombarded with memes i and i you know i think it's such such an interesting and like particular form of media that is perfect for reaching in contemporary audiences with you know certain ideas and I you know I think every meme page has its own specific curatorial line which is what differentiates all these shitposting accounts in the first place like not one meme page is exactly the same to the other even though you know a lot of them repost the same content there is like a specific taste to each one, I would say. And that's why, you know, that's why people, you know, follow some and not others. Right. And, and sometimes like, you know, if you really think about it, seeing a meme on a certain page kind of changes the meaning or can flavor the meaning of it a little bit too. You know, if you're seeing it posted next to certain other things, it takes on a different meaning than uh, it might from a different account. And I've also noticed that you oh. see a lot of group meme accounts too, where it's multiple people running and you get an interesting mix. It's, you know, it's kind of a all, con it's kind of a consuming thing, this meme, running this meme page. And, you know, you, you, get, you do get attached to like growing and stuff like that. But honestly, you know, it's just like a fun thing to do. I, I enjoy it. And I've, you know, I've, had interesting discussions with people, which I think is the most valuable thing. At one point, I managed to start a theory Discord, and it went strong for about a month and a half or so. Um, we, I, you know, had people reading like the Invisible Committee, and then, and once we finished um, the Coming Insurrection, we read uh, Critical Metaphysics. What is Critical Metaphysics by Takun, which I thought was. You know, that's kind of like what I'm most interested in, in terms of theory. So, uh, and, you know, I had really cool conversations with people and, you know, I've actually met two basically colleagues at this point, I would call them, uh, who, who were working on the clandestine unit for imaginary research together. And they, and they, you know, we met because of the, of the theory discord. So for me, it's kind of invaluable. Yeah, I 
that's commendable because I could not imagine running a Discord. I find a lot of those, uh, Discord's good, don't get me wrong. I, I just don't find myself having the ability to maintain those uh, community connections. So every time I do enter a Discord, I feel a little bit lost. And I know the people that are actually running them put a lot of work into it. Uh, it takes a lot of effort for sure. I also think that yeah. Instagram is probably the least uh, toxic, for lack of better word, of all the social media accounts. I've made really good connections there as well, um, as opposed to Twitter or Facebook. Um, and I'm just now starting to explore TikTok, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I like I exited Facebook. I mean, I'm still on Facebook. I not I don't really use it anymore and Twitter for me is just like uh, I guess I, I I only use it to like to keep tabs on conflicts in the Middle East like on a hourly basis basically but even that I have a telegram now that's like uh, shooting me updates on the situation in Yemen and Syria like on a almost yeah 30 minute um, basis <laughs> um so is there, before we get into specific stuff, is there anywhere that people could read your more theoretical stuff if they're looking for a deeper dive into these? If people are interested in reading what, I, what I've written, uh, they can DM me on the meme page and I, I always answer. I'm, I'm very, very good about answering. You wanted to talk specifically about the situation in Colombia, and yes. it is something I find very fascinating because about four weeks ago you saw lots of coverage of everything going on and then it's kind of died off um and there's i'm sure multiple multiple reasons for that but it's something that i think people on a global level and specifically in the u.s as well where i'm from really need to look at and understand i'll let you explain it but from my understanding the basic of it was that there was a tax hike uh, bill that was proposed, and then there was protest, a general strike in response to that. And then the government, which is a right-wing government, backed down from the tax hike, but the protest have continued and even gotten a lot stronger. So is yeah. there, yeah, if you wanna speak on that a little bit, so the situation is really complicated and far-reaching in the sense that I don't think you can fully understand what's happening in Colombia right now without understanding a little bit about Colombian history and the basically 50-year armed conflict that was technically resolved in 26 with the 2016 peace deal. But but let's let's, let's start, 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 start let's start let's kind start, of start, start from where you where you where you, where you, where you began and it's. it's so yeah, the the tax increase that was proposed was a you know a sales tax, which affects the poorest people in the country. And what's crazy is that the president was advised by an economic advisor to tax the wealthiest sectors of society before doing that, because obviously with the COVID uh, pandemic there's just like a huge hole in in the government's budget right and um so there was from a sort of government point of view there's a, a definite need to fill that hole with revenue but of course under the current neoliberal paradigm that was never going to be you know patched up uh, at the expense of the richest sectors and of course it was the middle and lower classes that were expected to, to to make up for it that being said you they the government backed down from these proposed reforms pretty early on in the protests but i think just the amount of violence of state violence and state terrorism that has been used against the the, the protesters has is actually what's garnered like this continued momentum of like dissent and rebellion. 
Yeah, it's um, kind of like are... reawakened the earlier um, problems that were quelled a little bit, right? Because I know in September of last year, there were protests in the capital because of police violence. Yes. So actually, I arrived in Colombia this time around in September of 2020, um, just as those things were happening. And it was very reminiscent of like the BLM protests that had occurred here over over the summer. And it's, you know, there's just like an enormous amount of discontent with state security forces. Um, those protests originated because of just like a, a murder that happened. Um, uh, a young lawyer was taken to a, you know, a, a, a CAI, a CAI, which is, you know, these little police bunkers that are spread around cities um, where, you know, local cops operate and, and he never came back. But also in 2019, right before the pandemic, there was a wave of protests against basically neoliberalism and I think 29, at the end of 2019, Colombia was not the only country to experience this. Chile also experienced this, and, and even other countries outside of Latin America were experiencing uh, these sort of protest movements against austerity and against just the current par economic paradigm. And so once the pandemic hit, it was very convenient for the authorities because everyone had to stay home and Colombia had the longest lockdown, I think, on the planet. Yeah, I didn't know that. I do. I did see that uh, Colombia has one of the highest per capita death rates. And it is, of course, like everywhere, uh, affecting the poor and the working class the hardest. There's no the government cannot operate in any other way than it does because of it. It's like kind of inherent fascist bent basically you know people are pretty much left to fend for themselves i would say <laughs> colombia i mean even before covid basically had no healthcare system is i mean correct well no it's not that's not exact i mean we we'd have to sort of nuance that there is a healthcare system obviously there is it's like a public private healthcare system there's something called eps's which are private entities which receive funds from the government and manage healthcare. So there's sort of like a basic healthcare that everyone has, even though it's like through private, through the private sector. Yeah, I, I, I should clarify. I was being a little hyperbolic there, um, as in like... From the interviews that I was watching to understand all of this, people were repeatedly saying, you know, I would go in and I wouldn't even get tested for something. They would give oh, me yeah. aspirin and send me home. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, no, the system is, is terrible. And it, it, it was made even worse after a famous reform law called the Lei Cien, the Law 100, which uh, occurred during not the previous administration, but the one prior to that, which is the administration of Alvaro Uribe, uh, who is a, an, a sick animal sick. Uh, in terms of his bloodlust um, because he's the one basically behind everything what's going on right now in terms of like the state repression um, but also apart from you know uh, his ferocious onslaught against the guerrilla movements at the time he was a neoliberalizer basically a privatizer so the ex-president is behind a lot of the stuff that's going on currently yes the last president is juan manuel santos and he is a neoliberal technocrat and he's responsible for making the peace deal uh with the farc um which culminated in the 2016 peace deal. Um, he is reviled by the ultra far right in Colombia, and of whom our previous president is part of. So uh, Uribe and his party, the Democratic Center, um, they are a, I would say, completely far right party. They have like many of the politicians have links to far-right paramilitary groups, to narco, to drug trafficking, um, and they were extremely opposed to the peace deal and campaigned against it. Um, 
and they're the ones in power right now. So Duque is the current president. He is part of the Democratic Center Party. Um, and everyone knows that he's a, a puppet of Uribe. I wanted to question a little bit more about the role that the pandemic has played in the continuing protest. Do you think that it's made them stronger? Is there a because of the of the lack of healthcare, or is it because of the economic situation that the it's, lockdown it's, has caused? Yes, exactly. I think like you can't understand the protests without understanding the devastating economic situation that uh, was produced by the by the pandemic. The like a lot of the things that people are protesting is you know unemployment or underemployment. Was there any kind of stimulus or relief offered in Colombia during for the lockdown, or was it pretty much I just left to fend for yourself? Pretty much fend for yourself. Corporations, small businesses uh, received some loans, I guess. Um, the what obviously so. Of course, the whatever relief there was uh, was very like corrupt in the way that it was doled out. So the banking sector got a huge amount of relief money from the government, um, and while small businesses got some, but nothing in comparison to to the sort of bailout that the financial sector got. Right, and nothing for for just individuals. No. Um no checks no food relief or anything like that um i think it's like at, the, at this point we would have to talk about specific municipal uh politics because i know for a fact that the mayorship of bogota which is the capital uh did have some food relief programs for example but at the national level no the the protests from what i saw the current protests seem to be centered in the city of Cali. Is that is that correct or is it going on all over? It's going on all over, but what is specific about Cali is the the amount of state violence um, that's occurring there. Well, so the state violence is occurring everywhere, but I think most notably in Cali, uh, it's egregious. And what else, what other, the other thing that's been seen in Cali is like the the appearance of urban paramilitarism, which is essentially private citizens um, basically arming themselves, which is, you know, this is a phenomenon that is not new to Colombia. Um, in the late 90s, the, the Autodefensas Unidas de Colombia like began operating in full force, which are uh, far right private armies on the behalf of, say, corporations or big landowners. Uh, Coca-Cola used them to assassinate uh, trade union leaders and so on. Um, they were supposedly demobilized in 2006 uh, through a very, very suspect uh, peace negotiation of far-right leader um, Alvaro Uribe, but uh, who himself is to have extremely like known links to these groups. I mean, his brother is said to have formed formed one one of these militias. Um, you know, while he was the governor of the state of Antioquia, uh, several massacres occurred under his watch. Even you know, government helicopters were used to assist the paramilitaries in their in the in these massacres. And I mean, something. I mean. Something I would like to talk about is this idea of accumulation by dispossession, which I think is like central to capital accumulation in Colombia. And I don't think you could understand uh, sort of the dynamics of Colombia without understanding this 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 process. Of, okay. Yeah. Let's yeah. Let's get into that. Okay, so I, I don't know if you're familiar with the book uh, New Imperialism by David Harvey, but... I, I am that. not, but go, yeah, go ahead. Give us a rundown. Well, the rundown is basically he, he reevaluates the idea of primitive accumulation that Marx um, describes and that Rosa Luxemburg uh, talks about herself. 
um, and he, he applies it to basically neo-colonial relationships uh, between the capitalist uh, core and the periphery. And that is, you know, it's if I if I gave you some like the list. So here's Marx's description of primitive accumulation details a range of processes: land privatization, forceful expulsion of peasants, conversion of non-private property rights like common or collective into exclusively private property rights, uh, suppression of indigenous forms of production and consumption, um, and uh, sort of. Uh, the lo- la- loss of sovereignty through national debt. And I think if anyone who's sort of familiar with the Colombian context realizes that this is totally endemic to Colombia. Um, and the state is part and parcel of this process. Um, and of course, the, the, the context in Colombia can't be understood without understanding also the the cocaine or the drug trafficking, which has also created sort of this narco bourgeoisie, which is extremely violent, but also has been integrated into the political processes in Colombia. So, yeah, so, I've yeah. seen it described. I mean, pretty much, very much like a mafia type situation with uh, the elites, the which are have connections to the right wing government, which have connections to the actual manufacturing and distribution of the cocaine trade. Yes, so it is, I think it's not an exaggeration to describe Colombia as a narco state where the ruling elites are totally inseparable from the mafia elites. Um, And so we have, there was a scandal and scandal is kind of a silly term because everyone already knew that it was occurring prior to the scandal but it's called uh the scandal is called parapolitica and it's the parapolitics basically tons of senators and politicians are accused of doing politics on the behalf of these right-wing paramilitary groups which i I was reading the other day i was uh, reading this book uh that sort of looks at development and civil war um, as the, these paramilitary groups are responsible for about 70% of the trafficking in Colombia. So, wow. so yeah, and, and you know, the, the current vice president, her brother is known to be a drug trafficker. Um, as, a, as a quick aside, do these... In public, like in media and stuff, do these uh, right-wing people, do they present themselves as anti-drug and whatnot? Well, yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, so... Which is usually the hallmark for that that type of, like, far-right conservatism anyway. So that exactly. <laughs> they, they present themselves as, let's say, the party of... Law and order. Law and order. Law and order. Law and order. You know? Yeah, I found the president, um, Duca, I found his address, his most recent address that I saw very the disturbing. One in English. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, the one in English. Uh, <laughs> but yet to say that so loudly and publicly um, while simultaneously denying the state violence, which there's lots of video of um, yeah there's so much evidence i mean i've been waking up for a month every day uh looking at terrifying images of of a total lack of regard for life basically and it makes it really you know it really affects me because because it's horrible the things i've seen i mean images of bodies in bags in the river of people getting shot in the street uh you know it's 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 crazy what's going on and you know it's part of the reason why i asked to come on the podcast is precisely so you know whatever listenership you have um could hear a bit about what's happening right now and there's also beyond the people that have i mean beyond the thousands of people that are confirmed injured and the numbers of deaths are wildly different um i don't know if you have a a number that you think is official but i've also seen 
a huge number of people that have just disappeared during yes. uh, these protests, which is very frightening because you could assume they're possibly been um, murdered, but they could also be held somewhere or something like that. Um, yeah, so there's documented instances of, you know, people being taken away in unmarked cars. Uh, I think right now in Cali alone, there's over 400 disappeared people right now. Uh, people who, they're not, maybe not necessarily dead, but they might be being tortured, for example. There was a case of a uh, musician who was taken into police custody and they forced him into, into confessing things uh, via torture. And there's videos of, of this confession. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if he's appeared or not as of right now. Um, but yeah, forced disappearance is uh, something not unknown to Colombians and is a, has been a tool of the state in combating the social protest. And, and of course, you know, the 50 year insurgency that occurred in Colombia, um, right. which is, you know, I think people in Colombia are not surprised by the level of state violence because they're well aware of, of how bloody the state can be. Um, during, during Uribe's tenure, the first, you know, definitely the first tenure was actually the, the most intense years of the Colombian armed conflict. Uh, that produced the most amount of, you know, victims and displaced people. Um, so I wanted to go back to the armed militias you were talking about a moment ago. So I also read some right-wing, you know, news and opinions and stuff going on just to see what they're saying. I always recommend people do that. Um, especially leftists like understand what the other person the narrative that they're putting forward and one of the things that they're justifying these militias by simply saying look it's colombians believe in having property and having the right to defend themselves There's, these aren't militias these are just people getting together and stopping you know they want law and order just as much as the government does so yeah how much of that do you think is true like how much of that fight back is um just maybe well-off citizens wanting to protect their homes uh versus maybe a more organized and insidious uh, i think it's both i think it's both i think like i'm i you know i'm not sure right now how organized these groups are like if they're operating under a name, ah, well, they are. They're called the gente de bien, which is, means the, the the people, the right. I don't know how to translate it. It refers to kind of like we're the upper class, basically. That's what it means. Um, well, that's super the, disturbing. Yeah. So they operate under this name, but but these people, especially in Cali, the bourgeoisie is heavily integrated into the 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 drug trade and so oh, is what i'm saying these people are are part of a of a narco violent narco elite right um so that's that's why they're armed with ar-15s and guns in the first place because they're they're mafiosos you know um and at the end of the day they are also just rich people who don't want people throwing rocks and stuff in the street, you know? Right. Um, or even just blocking them from getting from out of their, you know, they want to travel where they want to go. They want to go to the spa or whatever. Um, what's interesting to me is that sort of social struggle and all of the dynamics in Colombia have been mostly in the countryside and have revolved around land. Now the struggle is now extremely urban and even things like paramilitarism have become urban. That's not to say that there's nothing going on in the countryside. I mean, there's enormous amount of violence in the countryside. There's armed groups uh, that have taken control of territories in Colombia and are where there's no state. You know, the state is basically non-existent in rural Colombia and, and has never existed. So. And does does a lot of that revolve around the state trying to marginalize further indigenous communities? 
Yeah, in part, I think, I mean, here, like, I don't think we could talk about it without talking about, like, direct financial investment, you know? Uh, right, trying to trying to take those resources. Exactly. So, so paramilitarism in Colombia also has always been linked to multinational companies like Canadian mining companies, palm oil, monoculture, so agribusiness basically, and livestock. Well, so, I mean, we're seeing that it seems all over. Oh, yes. South, yeah, all over the yeah. world and all over South America. I mean, strongly. We For sure. Witnessed that. Brazil uh, last year. Is and there connection there? Like, are um, are the movements of resistance uh, connecting across state boundaries as well? There is a Comité del Paro, like a, a, a strike committee, which is the one. They're the ones in charge of, say, saying, okay, take down this resistance point, this roadblock, or put this one up basically and they're the ones um negotiating with the government which i don't know if you know but the negotiations have gone absolutely nowhere right right i i assume that much i thought that they were actually not even meeting with the strike committee but trying to like kind of work around them basically well, so recently in Cali, finally, the, the government sat down with the strike committee, but in totally in total bad faith because they're demanding, you know, basically to take down all roadblocks because they don't consider them legitimate forms of protest if the strike committee even wishes to negotiate with the government. And I mean, as we're seeing, they're they're working those roadblocks are working uh very well because that's the only reason they have that meeting in the first place precisely so they want them to get rid of their one or not their one but they're probably most prominent i would say uh, it's the main pressure yeah pressure. yeah for sure i mean i think it's the only thing that kind of has the colombian elites in sort of nervous and we didn't we didn't say this yet, but I think it is important. Uh, it seems overall the population supports the protest, even the more militant frontline actions. Yes, so seventy percent of the population, I think that was like the last poll, is in favor of the protests, and I think most people have a very favorable view of the front line, which they see as. Uh, as actually what it is, which is protecting the other protesters from state violence. That's amazing, really, to have that much of the population behind them, especially though, like the the front line, and to view it as that, to be like, no, this is protecting us, this is helping us, you know, actually get our voice heard, which is something that's usually turned against kind of fast because right. Yeah, when people are deprived of resources or whatever, if it's going short, it can be very easy to break a moment of resistance. Well, so so the government early on tried to blame the protests on Venezuela and Russia and this sort of in the what they call like in the 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 Sao Paulo forum or whatever. Is Uh, is this the molecular revolution? So okay, so yeah. so that 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 term is is was coined by this guy Alexis Lopez, who's a far right uh, Chilean intellectual and media giant, um, and basically the left, or at least the population, or the the masses in Chile, they scored an enormous political victory with the new constitution as the result of their own struggle, and. The Latin American right from Brazil, from Brazil to Chile to Colombia to Mexico, they're all terrified of things, these same things occurring in their own countries. So they're they it's it's they're all you know, they're all talking basically. And uh, Uribe tweeted about this dissipated molecular revolution, which is the theory that any social flashpoint can devolve into civil war. And I don't think you could understand the the state repression without understanding that because it, 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 they literally view the social protest in Colombia right now as a 
as an insurgency, as a as a, an attempt against the integrity of national security and the state. Right, and from my reading on that stuff, uh, I found it frightening, honestly, the way that they were talking about it because. It seemed to me extremely paranoid, um, and you know, kind of harkening back to old conspiracy theories of controllers of the world. And so, like, they're yeah. the idea seems to be that they say they're saying, no, these aren't actually protests. These people aren't actually mad. They are. There's an international ball. So yeah, that's the thing is like I I know I've heard Bolsonaro say stuff like that. Oh no, yeah, they they, they all think. Or I don't know if they genuinely think that, or if it's like you know your ideology that they you know use to shore up their own base. But it's it's laughable, honestly. I wish there was an international cabal of uh, communists organizing uh, social protests all over the world. They even say BLM is uh, part of that. Right, yeah, I was going to say, and it, it links to the far-right movement in the United States, you know, of yep. saying that kind of stuff. The, I mean, the Trump administration, when they were here, were openly saying that refugees at the border were secretly sent by communists you know to destroy america like denying that they were even people trying to get into the country uh they were saying that they were like sleeper agents right yeah it's such a paranoid worldview but it's a very powerful one because it gives them a scapegoat and an enemy so anything that happens it's not the fault of any systemic issue it's these outsiders exactly exactly they so, they they blame everything in Colombia more specifically on this ideology that they call Castro Chavismo, which is this this basically a concept they invented of everything that any any progressive uh, movement in in Colombia is, is is termed as like Castro Chavismo basically. Right, right. So it's like, um, yeah, the plot to enact, to bring back like a Cuban style government. Exactly. Yeah, that sounds unlikely. Um, <laughs> especially yeah. since you've seen in South America and Central America, like such different approaches to, you know, the socialist question. Um, and, right. you know, whether or not you agree with all of them or, you know, if you think they're all bad or all good it's definitely not all the same and it's i mean i would say many of them are pretty far from the cuban model so i think i think the the issue with the left in colombia is that for a very long time uh left politics were relegated to the sphere of literally armed struggle um which in a sense i think in the eyes of many delegitimized uh left politics but I think that's changing right now. In the 80s, the, there was a peace negotiation um, and a party called the UP, which is the Patriotic Union, Union Patriotica, was formed. And within a very short time, the state assassinated over 3,000 of their members and just, just kind of ended that, you know. Um, Openly. With, with the help of, of course, with the use rather like of, of these paramilitaries. And also with huge amount of help from the United States government in doing so. Plan Colombia was a huge, huge military aid deal from the U.S. that lasted for a long time, which was supposed to counter drug trafficking. But as I said before, the paramilitaries in Colombia are actually responsible for the largest, for the huge amount of drug trafficking. And it was really directed at ending the military capabilities of the uh, left-wing guerrillas. I want to go back again because I find the idea so interesting of molecular revolution. 
when I saw some clips of the right-wing Colombian talking about that and talking about this big plot that's all over, it did make me think of, you know, like, of Negri, of, um, like, that type of movement of Guarty and Blue, you know, how, how much do you think there is not in the conspiratorial sense, but is that molecular revolution? Is that connected with the left-wing movement? The left-wing movement. 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 So I think it. I think whatever is whatever relation that you can observe, I think it's not one of causality. I don't think anyone on the street is Colombia. Or very few, at least whatever philosophers do are reading the losing guitar and reading On the other hand, I do think that Deleuze, Guattari, and Negri and that sort of line of philosophical, they knew how social struggle was going to develop in the future, given, given the decomposition of the classical proletarian working class, for example. When Negri talks about multitudes, I, I do, and constituent power, I do see that as what's occurring in Colombia, not because they're reading Negri, but because he spotted actual dynamics. Right, right. That's the important thing is they're documenting the way things work and the way that right. emergence happens. They're not giving a description right. of how to go about and do it. Exactly. I mean, I think maybe the Invisible Committee is a bit more prescriptive. Yeah, but, that's yeah, uh, that's true. But again, I don't think anyone is reading Takoon on the front line. I wish they were, but I I I, I doubt it. <laughs> I did see in uh, Cali they they burned down they burned a down, police station down, and turned it into, into a library. Library, and right. I would love to know what books were in the library. It was it was right. quite, quite a beautiful uh, symbol. No, and the and the resistant points are are places of actually of, of quite a bit of joy and like you know conviviality and and sort of and and harmony. Actually, I was watching something and it was like uh, the the neighborhoods have actually been pacified uh, between gang rival gangs because it is now the people, the actual people that are in control of them. All of a sudden. I mean, I'm I'm always conflicted. On one hand, I I think that you know there's always a need for big political solutions that are top down, but I also do believe in sort of this more autonomous uh, way of bringing about you know socialism or communism or whatever. But the situation is critical, and it's you know. The dynamics that are occurring are, I think, specific to also to just the global system, you know. Um, right, I think, they are. like, you know, Colombia, can't, you can't understand the Colombian uh, context without understanding, like, the global context as well. And it's like neoliberalism in the United States looks one way, but it is also, you know, at the expense of you know, people in the global south that experience it in a much more violent and harsh way. Yeah, it relies on that. Um, exactly. A lot it's, of its, its resources. Exactly, exactly. Are memes um, indirectly fueling any of this? Is there, do you see For sure. campaign? I mean, there's a set of Instagram pages that are basically dedicated to covering the protests. You know, TV, the mainstream TV outlets are not allowed near the protests in the sense that the protests want nothing to do with them. Like uh, the RCN News and Caracol News, which are, they're basically known to be just mouthpieces for the state and for elites. Uh, they, you know, the they no one wants to be interviewed by them. They're not allowed into the, in the resistance points or, you know, Right. But on the other hand, friendly journalists are. And, you know, pe the protesters are smart and they know who to talk to and who not to talk to. And, right. Um, yeah, I mean, 
like we were saying before we started recording, the Vice was in there and was had a fairly good coverage, or at least from my perspective, not knowing yeah. much about it. No, yeah, it was. I, I I thought it was good. You know, it was very typical of the Vice style of kind of uh, we're in the thick of it, thick of it. Um, right sort of thing. But but yeah, I think it was good, and I think you know, it, I think. Uh, it really has been one of the only media pieces, uh, international media pieces, that's covered it recently, and it was a, it was quite a, it was a good short doc. I mean, I think the main I think the main takeaway is that this is a crisis in neoliberalism, and that people are rising up against the economic Sincerely hope that. Both the world recognizes this continued, you know, that the struggle has continued and didn't end, you know, two weeks ago or four weeks ago, that in some instances it's gotten worse um, with the, you know, militias kind of joining in and fighting back. Um, it's disturbing. And I think there's, you know, almost the inverse of what they're saying about that molecular revolution. There seems to be a pretty strong neo-fascist movement um, yeah. that the Colombian government is, you know, connected in and maybe as a pretty strong point. It's disgusting to see what they're doing to their people and the disregard for human life beyond, you know, any political demands or anything like that. Yeah, no, um, it's just the, I think the, the elites, they are terrified of letting go of basically an inch of of power and an inch of privilege um and there is also a sense of entitlement in colombia it's a highly stratified society um, and so there's there's a cultural di uh, dimension to all of this as well where the interior so to speak i mean not like beyond the use of it as like a means of this organization but as this which is because it's an expression that predates this um just the, the 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 nice people, so to speak. The, the, they they feel entitled. They they consider themselves basically this very like an aristocracy, you know. So the protests have seemed largely non-ideological, um, at least from what I can gather. They they really don't seem to be fueled by like uh you know a vanguard party or certain groups i'm sure there are groups participating but they uh to me remind me of um almost like a more militant version of the occupy movement in the u.s or like the mm. more militant version of the blm and i'm wondering if you see any kind of cohesion eventually happening do you think that the protest will come together to form some kind of more coherent ideology or is it do you think it will stay just trying to stop um or just trying to have these broad goals of ending you know the the police violence and getting um more employment stuff like that i can only i can only hope that this will culminate in an elevated, elevated proletarian consciousness and that the experiences on the ground are, will, are what are going to produce this consciousness. I think that it's possible that some theoretical and ideological uh, con like conceptions will rise out of this experience and will, might solidify in, in a more like in a more politicized uh yeah movement yeah um, and then as of right now i don't know how if that will happen but i don't think i don't think it's that unlikely as well <laughs> Yeah, is it my name page, I guess? 
yeah, I, we will um, we'll definitely link your meme page and some of the. I'll try to get some of the Instagram pages you were saying that have, are sharing and documenting information specifically about the protests. Right yeah, now. I can send you a list as well. That would be wonderful. Oh, also in the bio of our meme page, we have a. It's sort of like a GoFundMe, and if you donate money to it, the money will go to buying helmets and gas masks and medical supplies and like shields and stuff like that for the for the the young the young folks on the front line it's actually a, a senator himself who started it a left-wing senator so that got a lot of attention it's easier someone once said to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. But it's clear that where we can make systems of this complexity, cultural systems, economic systems, machines of this complexity, surely we can make a world that could first meet those needs I described that everyone should have, and then perhaps meet needs that people have only dreamed of, like the need for some autonomy and freedom. The need for that little space up there, the eye part, to expand a little bit. Just a little. Just a little. Just a little. The socialism that could engage with the yearnings and dreamings and Miles Davis music. An aesthetic dimension. Radically incompatible with everyday life under capitalism. If you have been enjoying our content, please consider registering your desire with the algorithm by liking and subscribing. This really does help us grow and reach a wider community. If you would like to support our work of documenting and nurturing the rise of post-capitalist desires, become a patron. This allows us to continue research-based memes, podcasts, and videos, as well as up our production value. Patrons receive early views of videos, exclusive content, and more, including physical art and the ability to directly influence our research topics. The building of a better world happens on many fronts. Turn on, tune in, and shape a future collective reality.